Please pick up your Bibles tonight, Matthew chapter 19. Trust you've had a good day today and I've been, aren't too tired for yet another few minutes. I want to speak on a subject that every Christian at some time or another has to come to grips with. And that's the issue of sovereign right. God's sovereign right. Every one of us needs to at some time or another come to grips with that issue. God's sovereign right. I don't know if another scripture that points this out as clearly as this one does in Matthew chapter 19 and 20. There are many demands of the kingdom of God and things that the scripture that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. This is one of them. I don't know if we're going to pick up the other five or six or seven, however many they are, at another evening or not, but this one is the one I want to speak about tonight. I felt led to do so. Beginning in verse 30 of chapter 19, but many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto man which was an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire vineyards, labor, labors into the vineyard. When he had agreed with the labors for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. When it, and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. He said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, I will give you. And they went their way. And again he went out about the sixth hour and ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all day idle? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So when the evening come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his stewards, Call the laborers and give them their hire. And catch this. Beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. When the first came, they supposed that they should have received more. They likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the goodman of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour. Thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is, go thy way, I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? 
Is thine eye evil because I am good? And then he begins as we start. He ends as we started. So the last shall be first, and the first last, for many be called, but few chosen. I don't know what you make of this story. Just a little bit of a different kind of story. But as I look at this story, there is something that grips my heart and speaks to me and tells me, well, it's been so practical. It's an issue that I had to deal with, and I'm sure that sometime, if you have not yet dealt with it, sometime you will also need to deal with it. Here you have this man. He wanted someone to work in his vineyard, and he hires, and it seems like the first one were the only one that made an agreement. He hired them. They agreed for a penny a day. They were bargainers, it seemed. I, I don't know if you're aware of how this system works. At least this is sort of the way it worked in Kenya. If you wanted a painter, you'd go down into the town of Kisumu and in a, in a spot close to where the paint store was, there would be the gathering together of the men who were painters. And you could hire a painter for the day or you could hire him for the job or whatever you wanted to do. But they would gather at that spot and if you came and you needed a painter, that's where they would be. That's the picture I get here. These men were workmen and they had gathered together with the idea that someone, hopefully they could find a job for the day. And so for a penny, they agreed, these first ones agreed for a penny a day. How did they get there as the first ones? Did they push the others aside? Were they the ones that were always the ones that just got there and pushed the others aside to get to the person that wanted to hire and, and then to bargain their way? I can just about hear the bargaining process. Oh, this guy comes with his chariot, pretty good set of, nice set of team, a team of horses. Ah, he's looking pretty good. It looks like he should be able to pay pretty good. And so they're asking, and they begin to bargain. And he says, uh, okay, penny a day. And they say, ah, no. Nah. Why wouldn't we work for a penny a day? Why couldn't you give us two? And he says, penny a day. Ah, uh, Surely, penny and a half. And he says, penny. Okay, if that's all you're going to do, we'll settle for a penny. And they get the job. Now, penny a day, six to six, 12-hour day. That's the way I would understand the economy of that time. Penny a day was not a bad price. It was what soldiers were being paid. And I think it comes to about what we would consider $32 a day, if I have it correct. It was considered a fair wage for a man. So, penny a day. Now he comes out and later on he decides, hey, I'd like to have more people. I'd just like to get the work done a little faster. So he comes out there. And this time he comes out the third hour of the day would be 9 o'clock in the morning. And he's saying, uh, he hires some more. And they don't bargain. He just says, whatever's right, I'll hire you, I'll pay you whatever's right. 
He comes out again at 12 and he hires them some more. Whatever is right, I'll pay you. Three o'clock, he comes out again and, mind you, again at five o'clock. He comes out and he says, I'll pay you what's right. But the thing that grabs my attention is that when it comes time to pay, he tells the steward that is doing the paying, start paying them from the last to the first. There was a reason he did that. He could have said, make sure you pay those first guys first. Get them out of your hair. They don't need to know what happens. That's, what it, that's not what he did. He said, make sure you pay the last guys first. So those men that had worked for one hour come and he pays them penny a day. And I suppose the ones that had gone to work first at 6 o'clock were like, their eyes were getting big and they were saying, you know what, this is our lucky day, I'll bet. You just wait. So our turn come. He's going to give us a good, a good bonus. He's paying them a penny a day. They weren't, weren't here but an hour. Those that came at 3 o'clock, penny a day. Those that came at 12 o'clock, penny a day. Those that came at 9 o'clock, penny a day. 6 o'clock, penny a day. And now, at this point, they were not very happy. They were like, what's this? We were out there for 12 hours. We were sweating it out in the hot sun. We gave you our best. I mean, we put it in there. We put it right in. We did your work. We really did it. And you pay us penny a day. These others, they were only here a short time. You're paying them the same as us. What's with you? And the master says, look, didn't we agree? Penny a day. Now let's put that into the game of life, or into, it's more than a game, into life. There are those that will take this parable and they say, okay, so those who come to Christ in their early childhood, they're the six o'clockers. Those who come in their teens or mid-teens or young youth, they're the nine o'clockers. Those who come a little later in their life, they're the 12 o'clockers. And then there's the 3 o'clockers. And then there's those who just barely squeeze in. They just get into the gate just before they die. I don't know if that's what this means or not. But somewhere in all of this, every one of us fits into this picture. We're one of these workers. If you have been one who has known has come up in a family where you have been taught from your youth and you've had the opportunity of being introduced to the principles of Christian living and you've been brought to the feet of Jesus and you accepted Christ at a very early age, it could well be that as we look at others who come later, that we could have a little bit of a chip on our shoulder because of that. But as I look at this, I find that God has the right to choose how it's going to be at the final end, what it's going to be. God will be fair. That's very clear in this whole picture that God will always 
be fair. He's never going to shortchange anybody. But a penny a day. And that, I believe, as I look at that, I don't know how to fully put this in perspective. When it comes to divine sovereign right, I don't know how many of you have had things happening in your life and you look around and you say, buddy, that's not fair. That's not fair. I submit to you tonight that life is not fair. And we shouldn't look at it in that way. Life isn't fair. Life for every individual is different. But I do know that the grace of God is sufficient and he will make a way for those who look to him for the strength they need for the moment. God in his sovereign right, as we deal with the issue of how God allows things to come into one's life that doesn't come, don't come into another. I had friends, for instance, who was a good friend when I was, as we were growing up and going to school and we sort of lost touch later on and now we were back into touch. But I remember well hearing the day when he was coming down the road with a tractor and his brother came across the knob, I'm not sure which, who was going which way, with a three-wheeler and smacked right into the back wheel of a tractor and died on the spot. And it seemed like just, oh, how could that ever happen? But the thing that struck me is not so long later, he had a young married brother who was out on the road, hadn't been married long, hit an icy spot, spun out of control and died. And not many years later, he had another brother was out working in the field and farming on a farming with a, a, a tractor and a heavy forage wagon, I believe it was. He unhooked the forage wagon. It was a hilly farm. And as he unhooked that forage wagon, it began to roll. And he was skilled. He was used to dealing with that kind of thing. They lived in the hills. They'd grown up on the hill in the farm. And he grabbed the tongue of that wagon and Evidently, in wanting to swing the tongue to make it so that it would come into the slope where it would stop, he must have stumbled and was killed on the spot. Three brothers in just a few years. God's, I didn't know what to tell him. I don't know what you would have said. God's omnipotent and his right to allow things in life is something we have to deal with. God says, I do thee no wrong. And I believe we need to come to, where, to the place where we look at life and we realize that we have to submit ourselves to God, God orders our lives, he allows our lives to be, and even he allows Satan to do things that we don't understand, like as he did for Job. He allows things to come into our lives we cannot understand. Job, I don't think, ever was able to see behind the scenes exactly what was happening in that setting. But he realized that, he realized that God allowed it, and in all this, Job sinned not, neither charged God foolishly. 
I would wish for that kind of feeling and for that type of, of spirit in my heart. But I'll tell you what, it's not always been that way for me. I have struggled with life. I have struggled when there have been things that come into my life. And tomorrow morning we'll get into one of those issues. I, Lord willing, in chapel I'll get very a little more detailed than some of the things that have happened in my life that have been very much of a struggle for me. Hopefully we can relate together on some of that. But I want to point us to two people in the Scriptures that give us an example, one that did really well and one that didn't do so well with this issue of life. If you will, turn me to 2 Kings in chapter 20. And I want to look at one example today, this, this evening, here of a man who really didn't do as well as I wish he would have done. His name was Hezekiah. He was, a, he was a godly king. He did really well as a king in many respects. And God honored him in many ways. But in this chapter, in chapter 20, there was something that happened. He really didn't do so well. It tells us in the day, days Hezekiah was sick unto death, and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Ammer, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thy house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. And he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. He was reminding God, you know what? I've been a good king. I've walked righteously before you. Don't you remember that? Shouldn't that count for something? I'm not very old, and you're, you're saying I'm going to die? It came to pass before Isaiah was going out of the middle court that the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Turn again, tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people. Thus saith the Lord thy God, the, the, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee on the third day. Thou shalt go up into the house of the Lord, and I will add unto thy day. 15 years. So God added to him 15 years because Hezekiah was not happy. He said, I'm not ready to die. I don't want to die right now. God, don't you know I've been a good king? That should count for something. Don't you want to give me something extra? Please, can't you do better than that? And so God gives him 15 more years. But what happens next? So he recovers and the king of Babylon, Belodan, and the son of the son of Belodan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present unto Hezekiah. And he heard that Hezekiah had been sick, and he sent an ambassadors over to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah didn't know what to do with the man. I suppose we'd have the same problem if you had to host some total strangers. He didn't know what to do with him, so all he could do seemed to think of to do is, well, I'll just give him a tour of the whole place. And so he gives them a tour of the whole place, including the house of God and all the treasures of the house of God. And God was very, very unhappy with him. And God said, because of what you've done, your sons are going to be eunuchs down in the kingdom of Babylon. And what does Hezekiah say? Verse 19. Then said Hezekiah unto Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. And he said, is it not good if peace and truth be in my day? My friends, Hezekiah was a good king, and this that he led Israel in the right way. 
But deep down in Hezekiah's heart, there was an issue. It's all about me. It's all about me. My friends, if you and I are thinking that the kingdom of God revolves around us, we have a problem. The kingdom of God does not revolve around us. We are pawns in God's hands. There have been many men and many women that have been murdered for the sake of Christ. They would have deserved, they could well have told God, God, don't you know I've been faithful? I've done my best for you. Is this how you're going to pay me back? But my friends, the kingdom of God is not about us. It's about God. It's about a cause that is much greater than we are. It is about things that are about eternity. You and I are pawns in the hands of God. Many Arab countries tonight, there are those who for the sake of Christ, who have found Christ, and in determining that they will follow Christ, their families have turned them away. Their families have disowned them. In some cases, the brothers even go after them to seek their life. And many of them have given their lives for the cause of Christ. And we in free America have been among the fortunate people who have not had to suffer that kind of persecution. We've not had to count the cost in that kind of way. I'm not saying it's not going to happen yet. But I ask the question, are we mentally prepared? Do we realize tonight that we are in God's hands and we are not that important? The cause of the kingdom is much greater than any one of us. And I don't say that lightly. Hezekiah struggled with that. Turn with me to the book of Esther. I want to look at another one who was given a tremendous trial in her life, but she passed the test. What a blessing to read about this. Now, to start off, Esther was an orphan. Her parents had died at a young age. We don't know at what point how much her parents were able to teach her about God and how she really came to faith. I don't know that. But Mordecai, her uncle, took her in and into her, his family, and she, as an orphan, she, he treated her like a daughter. And he brought her up in the ways where she knew God, knew about God. And she uh, became very, very subjected to the causes that God would have had for her. That's evident by the way she responded in her moment of trial. You know the story. We're not going to go into it real deeply, except to say that she became queen. And after she became queen, there was a man 
in the kingdom that hated the Jews but didn't know she was a, that she was a Jew. And because of his hatred for the Jews, he made a deal with the king that all the Jews would die on a certain day. And there was superstition and all that involved, and so they cast lots for a day when they would do this, this dastardly deed in killing the Jews. And the word went out, and the, and the Jews were. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. What's going on here? Anti-Semitism has been going on for years, and even is now rising in America also. But they were against the Jews, and they were going to kill the Jews. And Mordecai, he sends a word to Esther and says, Look, Esther, you were in a spot where you could contact the king for, in behalf of the Jews. Why don't you go in and make a contact? And Esther's like, Mordecai, Dad, don't you know it's illegal? How could I do that? He says to her, look, if you don't go, God will bring deliverance from some other place and you won't be spared. And she thinks, and she says, look, tell everybody to fast for three days. No water, no food for three days. I'm going to go to the king if I perish. I perish. We don't know what she was thinking. We're not told of her struggle inwardly and how she came to that conclusion. But I'm confident it was not an easy thing. But she realized, she came to the place, she said, I am disposable. If God wants this of me, I'm going to do it. If I perish, I perish. It's that simple. It's a counter a man wants to die after this, the judgment. Death comes to all. And we can talk about death, and maybe we will yet some evening, just simply delve into the issues of death and life. But I, tonight I want to just look at what Esther did here. She says, okay, if I perish, I perish. Three days later, she prepared herself, and she went in to the king and presented to the king, she just printed herself to the king, and that was illegal. And if the king, and he was not noted to be a friendly king, if the king did not hold out the golden scepter, it meant life was done. Be done. But the king held out the golden scepter, and she reached out and touched the top of the scepter. What do you want, Esther, unto the half of the kingdom? And she says, I'd like for you and Haman to come to the banquet that I have prepared. And I suppose she was shaking like crazy. She was nervous as could be. And so that day at the banquet, instead of making her request, that say, come tomorrow and I'll do what you're saying. And again, she was stalling for time, giving herself time, I think, to settle down and let her nerves take a break. If you want to have a picture of someone who was honorable and gracious in the face of struggle and trial, one who looked at sovereignty and sovereign right with an attitude that is golden and above reproach, 
Esther's delay. She saw that there's a purpose here. There's something that God could well be asking me to do. And if this is what he's asking me to do, I'm willing to do it, whether it means I have a life to live after this or whether it means I have no more life to live after this, I'm going to do it. She had given herself over totally to God's sovereign right. Hezekiah, on the other hand, was a selfish man. And look what happened. His son was Manasseh, one of the wickedest kings that Israel ever had. Could it be that because of the selfishness that he saw in his father, though he was one that walked with God in so many different ways, when he's heard how that his father said, oh, that's okay as long as it's good and truth in my days. That's what made him turn against God to the point that he even sent his son, was willing to send his son to pass through the fire for Moloch, the wicked devils that they were worshiping. On the other side, if you look in the book of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah requested that he could go back to Israel, Jerusalem, to build the walls, it says the queen was sitting beside the king. Who was that queen? Has it ever occurred to you who that queen was? I think it was Queen Esther. Look what God was doing through a lady that was willing to allow God to use her to the point where she gave everything up. Sitting beside the king, moving the heart of this cruel king. He was not an easygoing king. He was not known for being easygoing. But it says the queen was with him at that time and Nehemiah asked if he could go back to build the walls of Jerusalem. And he sends him back to Jerusalem to build the wall. So God was working behind the scenes, and I think Esther was a part of that. When I think of that, chills run up and down my back. You never know what God would like to do with a life fully committed and given over to him. Turn with me to the book of Luke in our closing moments. Chapter 9, verse 23. And he said unto them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? What a word. What shall a man be advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The purposes of eternity are far more important than the temporal issues of life that are seem so important to us as we walk here and now. Can you and I get the focus of eternity into our minds and into our hearts, sharply focusing 
on the purposes of the kingdom of God to the point that our lives are secondary. We are willing to put our desires, our pursuits into the hands of God so that the purposes of God can be fulfilled and the kingdom of God can be established on earth as he would like to do his will through his people. Verse 57. It came to pass as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes of holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Lord, Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell which are at my home. Jesus said unto him, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. What a word. What a word. Let me first. Suffer me first. What are you thinking tonight? God's calling you to do something. He's calling you to a mission. I've mentioned that a couple times already, that every one of us has a personal mission. Every one of us has a personal ministry. And it's not the same as another person's ministry. But as God is calling you to that work, and to that ministry. Have you come to the place where you recognize God's right upon our life? God's right to our energies. God's right to our life. God's right to adjust my plans. God's right to my ambitions. Can we adjust our thoughts and come to grips with the idea that we are pawns in God's hands? I challenge every one of us tonight to have that mentality. We do not have to explore we do not have to have an explanation for life. What we need is to live on the promises of God. God gives promises. He doesn't always have to explain how life is going to be. Life comes sometimes packaged in such a way and God will explain later as he did to Job. How about you? Can we subject ourselves to Christ, allowing God to explain later, but live on the promises that God has given us for the here and now? Let's stand for a word of prayer. Thank you this evening again, Father, 
for your word. We thank you so much for the example of our sister Esther, who with her godly submission to her stepfather, and even above that, to her father in heaven, could subject every step of her life and give it to the hands of her heavenly father, knowing that he knows best, and he would do that which is best. Tonight, we as individuals struggle at times with the issue of let me first, suffer me first. And we hear the solemn words, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Lord, I pray tonight that you would give us the ability, the submission, the humility, to simply yield ourselves completely to you for you to do your work, your plan, for your purposes to be fulfilled, for the kingdom to move on in the way that you would want it to go and the causes of eternity to be extended because of the lives of every individual that is here tonight. Give us that humility of heart and spirit. In the name of Christ, we ask it. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.